Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The Army conducts its biggest land deployment exercise for more than 20 years, testing whether it could get Britain's warfighting division to wherever it might need to go. The arteries of the division, they're made of steel and tarmac and concrete. Without combat supplies, we can't beat the enemy. So we keep the arteries open and they're the blood vessels that flow around the body. Also on SITREP, the Defence Secretary Grant Shapps announces his first deployment of British troops. I have authorised the full deployment of a battalion-sized UK strategic reserve force to NATO's Kosovo peacekeeping mission. We'll hear more about the violence and military manoeuvres behind the deployment and Major General Chip Chapman will explain what those soldiers will be doing. And we get hands-on with the new lighter, quieter assault rifle being bought for thousands of British troops. If you compare it to the SA-80, it has a, a collapsible buckstock allowing to uh, be adjusted for the firer. Ambidextrous, okay, so I can use it both shoulders. That's a key advantage for me. Sitrap with Kate Chabot and Chip Chapman. So uh, Mike is out this week, but we welcome Major General Chip Chapman to share his expertise instead. Chip, hi. Um, we've spoken to you many times on SITREP. Often it's been because of the role you held as the MOD's head of counter-terror, but there is a lot more in your 33 years in the Army. Just give us a quick whistle-stop CV, if you would. Let me just take two bookends, really, Kate. first one is I was a platoon commander in the Falklands, and there we had the full panoply of land, sea and air operations, which we see in Ukraine. And that really fired my imagination about the relationship between the tactical, operational and strategic levels, which we also see. But the final bookend is when I worked at CENTCOM for the great General Jim Mattis. And I think it was interesting, particularly because of the Kosovo thing we're going to talk about, about what he had on his desk, both as CENTCOM commander and as SECDEF. So as uh, CENTCOM, he had... Please understand there is no depression in this house. We are not interested in the possibilities of defeat. They do not exist. Whereas when he set deaf in the political domain, he had a reminder of purpose which went, will this commitment contribute sufficiently to the well-being of the American people to justify putting our troops in a position to die? And it's that strategy bridge between political intent and military power that Grant Shapps has really been um, looking at this week in the decision to deploy troops to Kosovo. Well, great that you could uh, you could join us on the programme today, Chip. Looking forward to talking to you. Let's start with the Army's largest land exercise for more than 20 years. It's called Iron Titan. Around 8,000 troops are involved and Rosie Layden has been watching some of the action. Hi, Rosie. Um, Hi, Kate. What, what did you get to see and what did you make of it? Well, it's always difficult to see, you know, to really get a sense of something that is that large. As you say, there's around 8,000 troops and it's spread over a massive area and we're just there for a day. So we get a flavour of it. But I guess what we did notice is is the variety. So we saw a lot of engineers and we saw a bridge being built, but we also saw the MLRS and we saw that firing and we saw the way that that has to move at great speed to, to try and make sure the enemy can't locate its position. And what they're trying to do is just put everything together. So really um, look at that support element and, and everything that, that goes into that, but obviously matching it with the, the combat troops and, and just trying to show it in a real or as close to a real environment as, as possible. So I guess we always hear people talk about agility um, but I think that they, they really are looking at, at the full 
test of everything they have in a whole range of, of situations. And, and, and that's what came across to me. And Rosie, just give us a sense of how big this exercise is. Well, it's extremely big. Um, we mentioned the number of troops involved. It's working across 24 locations in the southwest of England and Wales. So that's the spread of 118,000 square kilometres. They're training four formations in, in just one exercise. And it is an exercise that lasts for six weeks. So lots of the soldiers we came across have never spent so long in the field. So they're really looking at endurance and um, resilience and, and looking at just trying to be as close to real as, as they can be and of course if you think about the size of that area then um, that then you're looking at of course training areas but but they're really sort of pushing into urban areas built up areas and that side of things and we spoke to Colonel Jim Webster who's the commander of the engineers um, in 3DIV and he gave us a sense of, of how unusual it is to exercise at this scale. The exercise is incredibly large so we haven't exercised a divisional engineer group since 2001 uh, I know because I was on it as a very junior officer and that was the last time we had multiple regiments like this out with 10 squadrons training. So it's been a long time and it's great to see it now. The arteries of the division, they're made of steel and tarmac and concrete. So we keep all the routes and the bridges open. That allows the logisticians of 101 to keep everything flowing. Without combat supplies, we can't beat the enemy. So we keep the arteries open and they're the blood vessels that flow around the body. And Rosie, what is the goal of Iron Titan? It's about validation. Some of the units involved are, are being validated, but it's really putting a spotlight on the support element. Um, the units who normally get consigned to a background role are centre stage here. So that's the logisticians, the engineers, the signalers, everything a warfighting division needs to sustain itself. And that's all being tested. And, you know, I think we all remember and I asked some of the engineers who I happen to be spending some time with about um, those images which beamed around the world of the Russian experience at the start of Ukraine, which really shocked people of those convoys stuck in the mud or being picked off um, because they chosen to stick to, to just um, the main route. And I think um, we spoke about whether those images had perhaps made people really focus on what is required of support and, and what they need to be looking at. A chip. We've heard the Conservative MP Marc Francois claim several times that if 3DIV had to crash out, half of the division wouldn't even get out of the tank park. And if there are deployability problems, how much difference can an exercise like this make? Well, there's some val uh, valid stuff in what uh, Francois says. And really, the key question is, what is our fight tonight capability? And the deployability, which Rosie mentioned, of course, this is within UK, and we're not going to fight with, within the UK. So in terms of you know your uh, logistic uh, air transport fleet and your sea fleet to get abroad to um, to fight, then that's not been proven. But if we're being honest, the capability you're looking at here is to do with readiness, availability, training levels, and sustainability and assured combat support and service support. So it's the honest validation of those to see where we really are. One of the things you often don't get on these large exercises, and of course, this is the same size as the exercise Safe Surya 3, the last large exercise overseas in the Oman, is that we don't generally use much simulation. That, that's simulated uh, bulk fuel or artillery ammunition. So if you were to do that at scale, you'd do a lot more probably logistic loops and are probably going to be done in this exercise.
And Rosie, uh, Ukraine has changed a lot of assumptions about our possible future fights. Is that noticeable in what's happening in Iron Titan? Absolutely. I mean, it's so noticeable. The lessons learned from Ukraine are run all the way through this exercise. And, and most people I spoke to um, mentioned something. So it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I would say that the two big themes which affects everything is the way that they are in, encroaching into public areas and that interface with the public and, and how they would navigate that in a real situation. Um, so that's obviously about hiding stuff and, and, and trying to conceal what they're doing, deception. They talked about on some occasions they will run out a whole section of decoy drivers so that it's confusing as to what the, the where the real key assets are. And they talked about hiding in the noise so that there's that side of it. And then the other thing is about the way they are wanting people to really think about what they're putting out there. So in terms of communications, they say they're, they're dialing down on the radio, trying to use that less. They wouldn't put up tax signs for the HQ, someone mentioned to me. Lots of that. So um, this is Second Lieutenant Connie O'Grady, uh, the General Transport Troop Commander from 27 Regent Royal Logistic Corps. And she spoke about um, how they worked in a public area. One of our locations that we've been staying in is Chepso Racecourse, uh, which obviously is just like a random civilian area that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see the army in. So we've been practicing hiding our vehicles under like massive sheets of hessian to make them look like buildings or make them look like ISO containers. And then we've been putting like, like pallets in front of them and bins in front of them and rubbish in front of them. And genuinely like you'd walk past so, and you couldn't really see what, what vehicles were and what loads we had. Um, so there's so many different ways that we've been practicing solely on this exercise that I've never done in my training. And I know that most of my soldiers have never practiced either to this scale. How long is this exercise for, Rosie? It's six weeks. So yeah. that, that's quite a long time. And, and as I said, not everybody has spent that, that amount of time in the field. And, and so I think it's about trying out all these things, but being able to sustain them uh, over a long period of time. Great. Thank you, Rosie. Thanks very much. Um, Chip, uh, to your eyes, does Iron Titan cover the lessons that we need to have learned from Ukraine? Is there anything else that the army should be doing in exercises like this? Well, I think it covers most of them. So, for example, the assistant chief, the general staff has mentioned about four plus one capabilities. That's long range fires, air defense, electronic warfare, drones and logistics, um, which we took some capability holidays on really in both Iraq and more importantly in Afghanistan. Um, I think it would be interesting to see both the operational security, the OPSEC and the PERSEC personal security issues. Because I think one of the lessons from Ukraine is that if you illuminate on any MCOM, a mission control platform, including your mobile phones, you die. So I would hope that there is no mobile phone on any of those 8,000 personnel who are on the um, on the exercise. The other thing I think which is really crucial is we've seen land air integration at the lowest level. So have we seen that with the use of drones at the lowest level of platoons and companies at the fighting end of this exercise? And Ukraine, not surprisingly, was a key part of the first big speech by the new Defence Secretary Grant Shapps at the Conservative Party conference. Did it signal fresh thinking at the top of the MOD, do you think, or continuity from Ben Wallace's approach? No, I think there's continuity because it's, you know, support until the thing is over is the key thing. I think there was a lot of misinterpretation of his first speech in terms of what he said about training. So 
uh, a lot of people interpreted that we should export the training, the ARP Interflex, back to Ukraine. The key mm-hmm. word which people mixed, missed out was eventually. Similarly, they missed out a key thing in terms of what he said about the naval aspect, i.e. You know, supporting the grain initiative. And that is that the Montreux Convention of 1936 applies, and that is no British warships or NATO warships can go through the Dardanelles into the Black Sea. So if you were to support them, you'd have to do it by other means. That's either surveillance, drones or things of that ilk. Oh, thanks for clearing that up. Well, in that speech, Grant Sharps also announced that around 200 British soldiers are being deployed to Kosovo. The troops from the 1st Battalion Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment are joining NATO's K4 peacekeeping mission after deadly violence in northern Kosovo and an apparent military build-up by neighbouring Serbia. Alexandra Tomanic is Executive Director of the European Fund for the Balkans. She spoke to us from the Serbian capital, Belgrade, to explain more about what's been happening. The first escalation we had and where NATO troops were increased were already in May, when K4 was heavily attacked, uh, leaving around 30 K4 soldiers uh, injured, mainly from the Hungarian and Italian troops. But the last days, we saw uh, the next level of escalation. We still don't really know what happened because we still don't have an official uh, Serbian version of it. So so it's difficult. But what we have heard from the Kosovan side so far, there was a paramilitary attack on Kosovo police forces in the north of Kosovo, close to the monastery Banska. Uh, leaving one Kosovo police officer shot death and uh, another one heavily injured. Then the paramilitary troops occupied and took hostage of people in the monastery. Three of them were shot and the others somehow managed to escape by foot. So Mm -hmm. the point is that we have an escalation, that we again have to mourn losses of life, and that this in the fragile security structure and construction of Kosovo, but also broader when we look at the region of the Western Balkans, is very, very worrying. An escalation. And the US also says that Serbian troops have built up on the border. This is also not the first time we see that. And there again, we hear different things from official Serbian uh, sources. I can put it into singular because the official Serbian source is the president himself. Uh, He just gave an interview for CNN where he said that troops are already being withdrawn and really trying to de-escalate. An hour later, he was seen on Serbian TV where he said the complete opposite and where he even said that on the troops now is even more sophisticated weaponry. Very confusing situation. Um, For those who don't know the background, is it fair to say essentially in northern Kosovo, there is a significant ethnic Serb population who still opposes Kosovan independence and rule over them? Well, yes. And um, I'm really sorry that the focus is only on the north of Kosovo. Yes, there is a a dominance of of ethnic Serbs, but a lot of Serbs also live in in other parts of Kosovo and have found their way to to integrate and to become part of the society and to show that a multi-ethnic society is possible because that has to be the goal for the Western Balkans. So by focusing on the north of Kosovo, I fear that we are 
basically back to the um, in 2018-19 we had an open discussion of land swaps of partitions uh, that Kosovo gives to Serbia the uh, ethnically dominated the Serbian northern part and that Serbia gives to Kosovo an ethnically dominant part of southern Serbia then that was uh, luckily put put away because it would be the death of multi-ethnic civic concept societies and uh, it seems that what we see lately in North Kosovo basically leads back again to that idea. And how serious is the situation at the moment? It is very serious because uh, if we see the broader global picture, we, we are all aware of the so-called Russian world. There is a new term coined of the Serbian world. In the 90s, it was called Greater Serbia. You don't say Greater Serbia, that's so 90s. You now say Serbian world. Uh, we hear that from high-level politicians in Serbia since many years. We see what the president of Republika Srpska Dodi is saying and doing. And we also have to be aware that Peace is much more than the pure absence of war. And as we are now again counting casualties, um, it's very worrisome. So how, how great do you think is the risk of military conflict there at the moment? Well, I think that the, that, that, that the risk is there and that that is exactly the reason why peacekeeping troops are being increased, both in Kosovo and in Bosnia. And it's really so dramatic uh, politically, but also it's such a personal failure for so many people that in the past decades have worked on reconciliation, on mutual understanding, on regional solidarity, um, that we are again uh, discussing uh, open conflicts. And as you say, um, K-Force troops are being increased. Can you just explain a bit more about what their role is and what difference the, the, the increased numbers might make? Well, the, their role is to keep the peace and to allow for, for free movement of people across, across Kosovo. Um, and to increase them again is, of course, to, to I mean, th th that shows that, that the risk is taken serious and that... Uh, and that that more troops are needed to provide security for 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 all citizens of Kosovo. There is huge distrust. There is a huge frustration. Uh, the the dialogue, the so-called normalization dialogue, whatever that means, was a dialogue that took place behind closed doors. And what was forgotten was the dialogue uh, between citizens. Uh, citizens there are scared. They are traumatized of previous experiences, and and that is where then the international troops troops come in, to to hopefully provide for what is needed. Alexandra Tomanich, executive director of the European Fund for the Balkans. Uh, Chip, uh, just give us a sense, if you will, of what those two hundred soldiers from one PWOR might be doing day to day. Well, they join another four hundred British soldiers already there, and twenty eight other. Uh, nations who are part of the K4 remit, which has been there since 1999. So this is a NATO peacekeeping mission, and the additional people have come from a SACA request, the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, and has been approved by the NAC, the North Atlantic Council. Now, peacekeeping really uh, is maintaining a secure and safe environment, and there are really three roles for peacekeeping. The first is the consent of both parties, both the Serbian ethnic element in the North 
and the Kosovans. The second one is use of weapons in a defensive role only. And the third one is impartiality of actions. Now, I think the reinforcement actually is going to deter the Serbs from coming across the border, the build-up of force that we saw, again, very clever and good use of intelligence by the Americans. And deterrence is capability multiplied by resolve, multiplied by signaling. And rather like uh, in NATO, this Russia's actions in Ukraine, it's been a pretty good year for mutual deterrence there. And I think this will also help there. But the uh, K4 forces help to hold down the violence. They don't do much to diffuse the political tensions. And it's really to give the space for the uh, dialogue, which has been really missing to take place, which is the crucial thing about the reinforcement. But if peace is broken and hostile action does happen, what can those troops do within the terms of, the, of reference? Not a lot, really. Now, the K4 deployment is actually underpinned by a UN resolution. So whether you'd have to go back for a new UN re resolution to significantly alter the rules of engagement, but you don't want to um, sort of light a, a tinderbox again in the Western Balkans by taking offensive action. So it needs to go back to the political domain rather than the military domain. Otherwise, you're being, going to go along a large spectrum from peacekeeping to peace enforcement. And that's a, a, a whole different ballgame. Uh, the British deployment adds about 5% to the strength of K4. Other nations have also been asked. NATO's aim seems to be deterrence by show of strength. Do you think it is going to make a difference? I do. I think uh, the fact that the Americans have weighed in and uh, means that uh, Serbia will back off. Now, this has actually been running a lot longer than just what we've seen in the last uh, few weeks. There was a, a report in um, in June that the Serbs were uh, massing on the border. Nothing came of that. Uh, but the original problem this year actually originally occurred in March when uh, four municipalities in northern uh, Kosovo wouldn't take uh, wouldn't take part in uh, municipal elections. So it's that sort of enclave there and the mistrust between what Serbia sees as a, a desire for ethnic cleansing of those areas. And it's the failure of the two uh, main protagonists, the Kosovan prime minister and the Serbian prime minister, to meet, which has been uh, the real problem. And uh, that is the sort of stasis we're in on the political level. So we need to give the military space for the politicians to try and bang their heads together to try and resolve this. Of course, it's tempting to look at everything in the context of Ukraine right now, however marginal the connection. But what happens in the Balkans and what happens in Ukraine really do have bearing on each other, don't they? Well, I think they do. Um, Serbia is not part of NATO and Serbia always has this sort of Slavic mentality. And if you look slightly wider, of, of course, um, one of the strategic aims of Putin is to uh, weaken and divide NATO. Um, this could be, again, one of those theatres where you try and do it in the way that also trying to weaken and divide the EU is also a Russian strategic objective. And we've kind of seen that in the last week from Hungarian pronouncements, for example, um, not authorising the multi-year financial aid which was going to be done by the EU. News, discussions and analysis. This is now, let me play you a sound. That is the sound of a new assault rifle for Britain's armed forces. Sounds um, quite quiet, Chip, for a rifle, doesn't it? 
It does, but of course, noise doesn't relate to lethality or accuracy, uh, which are far more important than the sound that it makes. Well, the Army's just announced a £90 million contract for thousands of these new rifles, the L403. The Royal Marines call it the SK-1, and they've also placed an order after testing it out. Sergeant Gilbert of 4-5 Commando gave us his verdict. Compared to any, anything else we've used before, ergonomically, it's a, a lot more uh, stable. It's a lot more intuitive to use. Uh, so for a user on the range, and going forward into operations, it's going to be uh, a, lot, a lot better. Overall, it's a, it's a bit of a step change. Well, let's talk to Claire Sadler, technology reporter for Forces News. Uh, Claire, you got hands-on with the rifle recently. Uh, what's so new and different about it? I mean, it's a modern rifle using the latest design and technology. So there are some key things uh, to point out, really. One is the signature reduction system. That's basically a suppressor or silencer, and that design allows for the rifle to be used with the suppressor continually, so no need for troops to take it on and off. It's a flow-through design, and that pushes all the gases out the end of the weapon and reduces the back pressure that you would get on a more traditional one. And apparently that suppressor uh, is rated to reduce the signature of the rifle by 12 decibels. Also, it's got a cutting edge optical system on it. So it's got a vortex variable magnification optic, which has one to 10 times magnification. So there's a simple dial on the um, on that rifle that I saw. So you can just turn it from one to 10 to change that very easily. And it's also got a red dot sight, the Aimpoint Acro P2, which is highly reviewed if you look at that online. So another great benefit. Also, the weight of the rifle also is it's quite light and that's partly to do with the setup of it. So it's got this direct impingement system and that's the way the firearm functions basically. So how the rounds are loaded from the cartridge into the barrel chamber and that particularly makes it light. And it's got a two-stage trigger system too, which allows for very accurate marksmanship because the shots can be timed more effectively and it reduces the likelihood of jerking the trigger and throwing off the aim. So just a few of those those standout things to do with that rifle. So from what you're saying, Claire, for the soldiers and Marines using it, there's going to be quite a bit that's better about it. Well, that's what I am told. I mean, it's going to be very reliable and accurate and therefore what's most important, very effective in battle. So it's designed to make the troops harder to detect thanks to that silencer that I spoke about. And as I mentioned, weight is very important. So if you compare it to the SA-80, unloaded, that's about 11 pounds compared to the L403, which is seven pounds. And I did have a chance to speak to Staff Sergeant Dan Hardingham from 2nd Battalion, the Raging Regiment, about the L403. And this is what he told me. The benefits that it gives us are pretty significant. So if you compare it to the SA-80, it has a, a collapsible buckstock on the end, allowing to uh, be adjusted for the firer. Um, ambidextrous, okay, so I can use it both shoulders. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a key advantage for me. And also as well, um, going through doing CQB type actions, that, that signature reduction for me is quite, quite important. And those who tried this uh, out, what, what's the feedback been? Really, really good. Very, very good indeed. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a quality product, um, it's, it's exceptionally well built, it's reliable um, and yeah, I think all the guys in the battalion are really looking forward to, to, to getting hold of it and, and putting it through in places. So Claire, who's getting it and when? 
Well, initially, this is going to the Army Special Operations Brigade, so the Ranger Regiments. They're going to get it later this year. Uh, we also know that the Royal Marine Commandos, they've been putting it to the test too. You had heard one of those earlier talking about it. So basically, it's been given first to those who conduct the complex operations and need the top tier equipment to give them the upper hand uh, on the battlefield. We know that just over 1,600 of them uh, have initially been ordered, but there is an option to purchase 10,000 over the mm. next decade. So while some of them are getting it relatively soon, and that is job dependent, others, of course, could be waiting for some time. And is it going to replace the current standard issue rifles? Well, it isn't designed, as I'm told, to replace anything. The word that they were using to me is supplementing uh, the current equipment. Um, so, no, nothing is, it's not designed to, to be anything else out. But if it's lighter and it's better um, and more of, as more of them uh, come into service, of course, it might become the rifle of choice. So we might naturally see uh, it replacing other pieces of kit. Thank you, Claire. Um, I'm just wondering, Chip, um, how would you feel about getting your hands on one of those? Well, anything that you can fire from both shoulders, it's light and there's less blowback, blow I think, is a, is a good thing. I'd be delighted to fire it. We've had quite the debate in the last few years about whether tank warfare was obsolete. Of course, events have shifted that debate. No one's ever questioned the future of the rifle, though. Is it here to stay forever? It's an interesting question because for many in Ukraine, the drone has become almost akin to a personal weapon. But in extremists, in a trench, it's a man or a woman against a man or a woman. And when your drone technology is jammed with EW, your rifle or personal weapon is still your best friend. Chip, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you very much for joining us on SITREP. And my thanks to all of our guests. Mike will be back with me for another SITREP next Thursday. Before then, if you want to catch up with past programmes or some of our extra interviews, just search for BFBS SITREP wherever you get your podcasts. If you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.